Hey everybody, Ari in the air here. Welcome back to the podcast. If you're tuning in on Facebook Live, I'm going to record a podcast here for you live on my thoughts surrounding the coronavirus and the general state of our information ecology, which is a huge part of what is happening here. It is and has been for a long time. It is increasingly difficult to discern what is true, who is telling the truth, what are the disruptions in the stream of accurate signal versus the distracting noise. What is true? Who are the sources we can trust? How do we vet the information that is coming to us? And how do we make our own decisions as to what actions to take? This is such an incredibly interesting time right now. I have to say it's so, it's just purely interesting because never in my life would I have thought that these kinds of questions that I have, these kinds of inquiries are coming to work themselves out or to start to like unfold, right? And the question of what do we do about coronavirus or how serious do we take this threat is something that I want to address. But the underlying issue that I think is more important here is what is the state of our information ecology? What is the state of the systems that are in place? How do we get information? How do we disseminate it? And what does that do for the quality of our lives? What does it do for our ability to respond to things like this? And I think that as I look out on Facebook or look out on Instagram, I see a number of things that I would consider uh, confirmation bias. And to begin, I will say that I am, if you know me, I am just so deeply cynical and skeptical of anything that is told to me by the mass media or by the government at large. And I think that I am so well-founded in my skepticism of the media and the government because the reality is that the power of the media and the government has been so abused for so long that anyone in their right mind knows that anything told to you by the government or by the news is just most likely to be propaganda. So when we find ourselves in a situation like this where the quality of information that we need is like really important and how we vet and discern the information that's coming in is of like utmost importance in determining how we move forward, both as individuals and a collective, this stuff is like, right? Like you can see that the mass media and the government line is like fucking us on a number of different way on a number of different fronts that then kind of like come back in this positive feedback loop of disaster as 
we actually need some kind of collective intelligence, some kind of collective decision-making and collective action, right? Because humanity as a herd, like if we have something that is so infectious and detrimental, then like we actually need to be able to have good information. We need to make decisions quickly and we need to take action as a whole. So how that how we go about doing that is very difficult if our information ecology is as broken as it is. Okay. So before I say anything about the kinds of cognitive biases and confirmation biases that I'm seeing out there right now, I will just say that in general, I'm so deeply skeptical of the media and skeptical of the government. And even In the past couple of weeks, I have been very skeptical of the hysteria that has been promoted around coronavirus. But as I have wondered about these things, I saw in myself the response that wanted to just take whatever the mass media says and then just say, if the mass media says this, then the opposite must be true and stop my research. But I... I'm lucky enough to be connected to people that I really trust whose sense-making ability in how they discern information and how they can do their own research from a level of data as opposed to a level of analysis is really high. And as they have come to certain conclusions, it has really sparked in me a new sense of research and inquiry. So I've gone back and I've done a lot of research and inquiry in the last couple of days as to what is going on around the world And I would say that a couple, uh, or I would say in general that my opinion has changed and that I am taking the current situation with a more serious um, attitude than I thought I would have a week ago. Um, And I'll tell you a couple of the biases that I see out on Facebook and Instagram, social media, in general right now. Um, And I would say that the first thing that I'm seeing that's really prominent is a cognitive bias that if you've ever read the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning nonfiction book about our cognitive biases. He talks about one of the first cognitive biases that he illuminates in that book is our inability to really viscerally understand and embody exponential growth. We can really understand 1 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1, but 1 plus 1 times 2 times 2 times 2 times 2 times 2 times 2 is something that as an, from an embodied sense is something that we have a hard time of really, really grasping. And... One of the cognitive biases that I see online is that people are like, oh, they quote a really small number of cases of COVID-19, or they quote a really small number of deaths, and they say, well, more people die in car accidents, or more people die from this, or more people are sick from this, for any number of reasons, and I think that 
in general, that is playing to the cognitive bias that you probably don't really understand how exponential curves are working because uh, obviously an exponential curve stays flat for a really long time before it completely explodes all at once. And if you say, well, nothing's happening because we're at a flat part of the exponential curve, then you probably don't know what you're talking about, right? The second cognitive bias that I'm seeing online that is really... Um, people are using all over the place is that the symptoms, the effect of the coronavirus are not much more than the common flu. And I think that in general, it seems like you might be right, but I don't, I think that they're using that fact as cognitive bias to to dismiss the situation because I think that the reality is that the issue is not just the symptoms or what the symptoms of the coronavirus are. That's not the only issue. The issue is the widespread nature of a infectious disease that is very infectious and it doesn't have a current cure. So I think that in general, the risks of the coronavirus are not that everyone's going to get sick and die. And there is a part of the mass media that is scaring people into thinking that they're all going to get sick and die. I agree. And so one of the cognitive biases that we're seeing is that people are saying things like, don't let yourself be controlled by the media. Don't let yourself, don't let them make your life so fearful. There, people are saying the opposite of what the media is saying, right? But there is an element to that that is protective, that is loving, that is, there are people, and a week ago, if they were to say, hey, don't listen to the mass media, the mass media wants you to be afraid, and they want you to be free of the control of the mass media over the, or the government, they would have been right a week ago. Right? Like, I would have told you that a week ago, but it's really important that anyone you listen to is nuanced and flexible and using the best information that they can get at any given moment to discern new levels of understanding and nuance for any given situation. Right? If you are just saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over and you're applying it to different situations of increasing complexity, then you're going to be more and more wrong as time goes on. And the people who last week were, or a month ago, before coronavirus, were saying, don't let yourself be controlled by the media. Don't let yourself, let the media instill fear in you. They were right. They were right back then. But as time goes on and new information comes out and the reality is more complex, then we're going to have to change our mental frameworks and we're going to have to use more discernment, better discernment, for us to make better decisions, both individually and collectively, so that we can clean up the information ecology, clean up the environment in which we're exchanging information, so that we can actually some come to some kind of 
equanimity in truth, in the things that we're saying actually represent some kind of objective representation of reality, right? This is harder said than done. This is harder said than done. Okay, so to talk about this, you we have to make a delineation between two things. One is being truthful and the other is being true. And truthful means that someone is saying something that is in alignment with what they think is true, right? If I told you that I'm feeling well today, that is truthful. But if I told you that there's no snow on the ground, then that would be untrue. So truthful is in alignment with what I'm feeling or what I think, where true is actually representative of some objective outside reality. And this is a really important thing to understand how the information ecology gets poisoned, how it gets polluted, because there's so many people out there who actually want to spread what is true, but their own ability to sense make is undermined by so many years of polluted information ecology that the things that they repost, the things that they say are truthful to them, but they're actually untrue. So that's the case when the perch, when the person says that don't let yourself be controlled by the media. Don't let yourself be afraid because the media tells you to be afraid. And a month ago that was probably both truthful and true. And now it's just truthful, which it's lost its connection to the outside objective reality, which is the nature of truth. And we need to be striving for that all of the time. So there is this element that people are saying, um, you know, don't let yourself be controlled. Don't believe the mass hysteria. And there is an element to them saying that that is truthful, that they, they think that it is true and they think that it is helpful. They think that it is protective. It is loving. It is somehow they don't want you to be controlled by the media, right? They want you to, they want to warn you that for so long there has been disinformation. For so long there has been abuse of power and information systems that you should not let yourself fall into the trap that that this sticky tar pit that has been there for decades is likely to trap more people. There is also an element to it that is just sheerly their ego. That is, I'm right and the media is wrong. And I know that the flu-like symptoms are easily overcome and there's only so many cases and these kind of cognitive biases that are baked into their opinions that are baked in, um, in a way that it's just like their ego coming through in their opinions. Right. And in a way that they're, they're confirmed by the bias that they have been so right for so long saying that the information ecology is tainted and poisoned and you can't believe it. But we're in a really unique place right now where we can't just rely on slandering the information that's there and, and believing that what information is there has to be untrue and the opposite must be true. 
that is not as nuanced of a position as is necessary in such a time, right? It's a very interesting time we find ourselves in where we are having to amalgamate really complex concepts into our day-to-day decision-making. And as we talk about the information ecology, what is really important to recognize is that the world in general is so incredibly complex that no single person can understand it, even in the abstract. And so we are forced, therefore, to rely on each other to offset our cognitive bandwidth, to offset our mental overhead, so that we can even understand the world enough to make basic decisions, right? We see this at the grocery store when we want there to be a USDA or an organic label so that we don't have to look through the ingredients, so we don't have to look up the company, so we don't have to go to the farm, right? And the same is exponentially true in a situation that we find ourselves in today. No one person can really, like, I don't have enough time to find all of the raw data from the Wuhan province in China and crunch the numbers myself to determine whether or not the Wuhan province experienced an epidemic outbreak of the COVID virus that is worthy for us to take seriously and shut down schools and shut down businesses and such, you know? Like, this is really complex stuff. So just, I would, in general, be weary of people who are espousing more confidence than they deserve. (laughs) I think that there's an element of the argument that you shouldn't be afraid or that I'm too tough to be afraid, I'm going to be fine, that, you know, I'm a professional action sports athlete and I'll tell you that that is an easy bluff to call because not being afraid of any given thing means that you're either ignorant to the risks or you're making some kind of facade as to what's actually going on inside of you. Which I think is, it's an interesting thing to consider when you're getting information, right? So I posted on my Facebook an article written by Jordan Greenhall. He is a person I have personal ties to. He is a futurist and a philosopher and a speaker and someone I think you should really look into. And I posted an article that is his situational analysis. And I just want to kind of go over a couple of the things that he's talking about here inside of this um, article that he wrote yesterday, March 15th, 2020. And 
He refers to what we're dealing with right now as a meta crisis. And a meta crisis, what he means by that is that it's not just a health crisis. It's actually a health crisis that is stacking on top of a financial crisis, that is stacking on top of a infrastructure crisis, that is stacking on top of a personal crisis. Um, and to help people understand these different, these myriad things that are stacking, he refers to them as threat vectors, and he lists out the major threat vectors. He lists those as medical system overwhelm, which I know that the media has covered a fair amount, which is basically that so many people get sick at such a rate that, you know, the current rate is that about 80% of the people who will be infected with the coronavirus will not need hospitalization, but the 20% that do then if that number is so much bigger than the beds available in the hospitals in the place that they're infected, then we quickly arrive in a medical system overwhelm. And that's something that has been seen in Italy and is terrifying because obviously it shuts down your ERs and it shuts down your ICUs and all of the people who are recovering from their car accidents two weeks ago are then laying next to an infected person and there's just all kinds of fallout from this. And he also points out that um, these are regional and in the case of Italy, in southern Italy, the population density is considerably higher than northern Italy and as the Italian hospitals filled up, that resources flooded in from around Europe and the big, big problems come in when bigger regions find themselves in medical overwhelm at the same time, such as if Portland, Oregon had a medical overwhelm, then Central Oregon could send nurses and doctors and resources to support them. But if Portland, Oregon and Central Oregon and Southern Washington and the coast are all facing medical overwhelm at the same time. And we get to a point of global medical overwhelm. And that is a very worrying development as Greenhall puts it. So the next thing, the next vector of threat that he talks about in this meta crisis is resource depletion. That is panic buying and resource allocation issues combined with combined with shutdown supply chains like if the grocery if Fred Myers and Kroger says we're going to shut down um the Fred Myers stores to protect our employees then the grocery stores are closed and people can't get food and there's snow on the ground here where I live in Oregon and there's not a lot of food growing out of the ground for anyone and what happens next can be quite disruptive the next thing that he talks about as a threat vector in this meta crisis is cash depletion. He quotes that 70% of the U.S. population lives paycheck to paycheck, and many will see income drop over the next few days. In many cases, it will drop to zero, particularly in any sort of quarantine environment, right? There are people who have to go to work, and if they get sick and they can't go to work, then their income is shut off and 70% of those people live paycheck to paycheck. So 
if you're quarantined for six weeks, then paying rent can become a big problem. So the cascade from medical to financial to civil unrest doesn't necessarily take that long. And it also doesn't necessarily mean looting and um, fires in the streets, but it can put strain on the financial system. And if you have paid attention to the global financial system, this global fiat house of cards that we live in, then I think that it's not a stretch of your imagination to imagine that a 1% death rate in the population could have cataclysmic effects on the financial system, which then takes our medical crisis into a meta crisis, right? Um, so the next thing that he talks about in this meta crisis, uh, a, th- a vector threat is the supply chain overwhelm. This is grocery and all the way into physical infrastructure, like utilities of gas and electricity and highway systems and all of these things. Normal interruptions of service might take longer to repair in your internet and your power and all of these things. And that can be quite worrying. The next thing he talks about is civic infrastructure overwhelm, and that is a reduction in capacity of police, of EMS, of fire, and that leads to increasing gaps in civic infrastructure. And more narrowly, prisons and the homeless are two major areas of concern, he quotes. As affected populations, as vectors of systematic risk, He's not currently aware of any coherent proposals to address both prisons and the homeless. Those are two kind of crazy things. I'm going to, uh, and the, the next thing that he talks about is a, what he calls a copycat and or pile on event. So imagine right now, as we're dealing with the coronavirus, that Hurricane Katrina strikes or that the Pacific Northwest gets three feet of snow at a thousand feet of elevation. Um, the two things combining can be very problematic, right? So um, even just the weather is like Mother Nature hitting us while we're kind of like dealing with this stuff can be another thing that stacks. The next thing he talks about is continuity of governance. And I'll just read this one for you. Iran has seen this, the relative balkanization and immaturity of leadership in the West who have for the past decade preferred to squabble in inter-elite competition and virtue signaling means that the even small numbers of specific people getting sick could significantly reduce already contingent sense and choice making as the precarious balance of coordination devolves into power grabs. This is almost like the idea that when people get really hungry, they would steal. And that's, this is, that's almost like the hungry politicians would begin to steal, right? So the next thing is the financial system collapse. And in 2008, we had this global financial system collapse that basically was not fixed in any meaningful way. It was essentially covered up. It was blanketed by the government by bailing them out and 
refinancing them and no one was punished and all of this shit basically just like was swept under the rug. And so if you've paid attention to the financial system that we live in and the fiat currency in general, you know that this is a house of cards that a global pandemic could shake the table of. Okay. That's a potential downward spiral. The next one that he lists here, which is something that's very near and dear to my heart, that is a terrifying potential fallout of this meta crisis is authoritarianism. And he says that it's quite likely that a very significant and novel level of author to our own experience anyway, level of authoritarianism will be requested or required to address the many different aspects of the meta crisis. Enforced quarantine is one obvious example. This creates a threat of both intentional and strategic and unintentional and systemic transition into a significant increase in authoritarianism at the political level across many different dimensions. As we have seen with the 9-11, the Patriot Act, these things have a habit of becoming habit. Basically, what he's saying here is that if the government takes control of various things and has a mandatory quarantine, a mandatory curfew, that that sets a scary precedent for that thing to continue into the future from a temporary sense into more of a permanent one, which is terrifying. That's martial law becoming tyrannical government overnight. So I'm going to skip a couple of these and go down to his last point here, which is super fragility. And I'll read it. A crucial insight is that the operating logic of our current civilization has been to trade resilience for efficiency, which creates fragility. From child care, family, education, and mental health to supply chains for food, water, material, and medicine, we have been optimizing everything to their limits for half a century. This generates short-term profits and long-term risk. The current situation is pushing on all or it is pushing on effectively all systems. Many of the vital systems of our civilization are at or near critical points, and as the meta-crisis unfolds, small and rather ordinary perturbations could break some or the many of these fragile systems. For example, while it might seem relatively trivial right now, large-scale school closures and a massive shift to telework will not be without durable and in many ways surprising consequences. Hmm. I'll go back there for a second. The operating logic of our current civilization has been to trade resilience for efficiency. So one example of that is our food supply, where most of the food that is produced in America comes from central California, right? And because of that, if Central California has some kind of gigantic issue, then we're kind of all fucked. So we don't, we have very cheap food supply and it's very convenient, it's very efficient to get our food from Central California. But 
we're not very resilient to the potential problems that can come with that. The opposite of that is having a local food supply, which in Central Oregon is different. We have is difficult. We have short growing seasons and hard winters. But that is just one example of trading resilience for efficiency. So the next thing that he talks about in this article is not just the vectors of threat from the meta crisis, but also the opportunities. And the first one he talks about is learning. This event provides a uniquely rich and salient opportunity for learning. We are all of us right now faced with meaningful choices in the context of uncertainty. Did you buy food two weeks ago? Well, for good or bad, the real situation has changed for millions of store shelves. Choices have real consequences. Hmm. Moreover, many of us are making choices in the context of competing ideological worldviews. This is something that I was talking about earlier in the beginning of the podcast, such as, is it just the flu? Are the relatively small numbers of infected people in central Oregon indicative of the hysteria being just hysteria and not this not being a problem? We are about to find out in a very real way, he writes. Finally, we are now faced with an increasingly intense consequences under growing complexity and the dawning reality that the governance structures that have been making our choices for us for the past 70 years are not well designed to address these kinds of problems. So what do we, what do we get to and need to learn? The first thing is systematic fragility. Trading for fragility for efficiency is a bad trade. It, gr- it works great in the short term, but will always collect in the end. We need to learn this lesson to the level that creates durable cultural habits, like saying bless you when someone sneezes. It is possible to have both abundance and anti-fragility. Hopefully this year we will begin to learn how to get there. I love that. It is possible to have both abundance and anti-fragility. We do not have to trade fragility for efficiency all the time. The next thing we need to learn from this whole thing is decentralized sense-making. People are noticing that networks have done a vastly better job of making sense of the unfolding metacrisis than official channels like the mainstream media. And that's not surprising. Those legacy channels simply weren't cut out for this kind of event at their best, and they are very far from their best. At the same time, we are still in the early adolescence of decentralized sense-making. There is an enormous potential here waiting to be realized. Decentralized sense-making essentially is that you have the tools in your toolkit and the resources mentally and cognitively to use your own discernment to make good decisions for both yourself, your family, your community, your state, your nation, and the globe, right? Decentralized agency is the next thing that we need to learn from this. Our legacy institutions like the government and mass media, for the most part, are doing their level best to serve us. 
right now. And I don't think that's necessarily true a month ago, or I don't think that's holistically true in this, but I think that the CDC is probably not misleading you as to the severity of the potential fallout of the coronavirus. But as we saw in 2008 with the financial crisis, both the wisdom and integrity of the government's choices can often leave much room for improvement. The current crisis is much more complex and is unfolding way faster than the financial crisis of 2008. We have now both an opportunity and plausibly a necessity to upgrade our collective decentralized agency and sense-making and to solve problems together. Okay. Remember at the base, all agency is grounded in individual people making their own choices. The more we learn how to quickly use our capacity for communicating to orient our attention to the right information, the right people, the right projects, and then support coordinated action, the more we can move from that agency from the old 20th century hierarchical bureaucracies that currently run the world to much more flexible, adaptive, nuanced, and intelligent 21st century self-organizing collective intelligences that can fully respond to meta-systemic dynamics. Okay, so get your attention back for this next part here, which is how do we do this? What do we do? And this is something that I've been talking about on my podcast for quite some time. This is the Airy in the Air podcast. If you're not familiar with it, that may be my fault. It may be yours. But I have been banging the drum for a long time that any change in humanity, in society, first comes from the individual. So if you want to upgrade Humanity, if you want to upgrade Oregon, upgrade America, you have to first upgrade yourself. And Jordan Greenhall agrees by writing this. In some sense, the path forward is surprisingly simple. He gives six steps. And I am reading from an article that is on medium.com titled Situational Assessment Right Now. This is written by Jordan Greenhall. He lives in Encinitas. He is a philosopher and a futurist. I have personal ties to him, and I trust his discernment uh, very much and have vetted his work uh, extensively. I have posted this article on my Facebook. You should definitely check it out. It's worth reading, and it's not so long. It's a 10-minute read. So the path forward out of this is surprisingly simple and Greenhall proposes six steps. One is upgrade your sovereignty. Increase your ability to make effective choices under a larger diversity and intensity of contexts. There is a lot of room between panic and denial. In the future, everyone counts and has to be able to take responsibility. Let me repeat that again. There is a lot of room between panic and denial. As humans, we have a natural propensity to polarize our conversations and to stick to the, the radical ends of the conversation. In this 
uh, this time that we're in right now, the poles of that conversation look something like panic or denial. But he, I will remind you that there is a lot of room between panic and denial for nuanced inquiry and information. Number two, uh, the second thing that we can do personally to work and learn through this experience is upgrade your discernment. Increase your ability to separate signal from noise, in particular the noise of your own biases and projections. Learn to deal with reality before reality deals with you. If you go back to the beginning of this transmission, this podcast that I'm recording right now, I talked extensively about cognitive biases that I'm seeing in people's uh, sense-making as it regards to these kinds, uh, as it regards to the current crisis that we're facing. And like he says, increase your ability to separate signal from noise, in particular the noise of your own biases and projections. Because the position you had a month ago on the media and the government might be insufficient to provide adequate or responsible advice moving forward in today and tomorrow and a week from today, right? You got to be flexible and you have to be... An open mind means that you can take in new information and change your mind, not that you're willing to hear people's position. The third thing he says is upgrade your integrity. And he quotes here, the Japanese word toku... Te in Chinese, which is usually translated as virtue, also means power or integrity. Toku is the consciousness of the whole that makes your life coherent, consistent, and integral. Therefore, toku is integrity, and toku is also power, because through toku, your vision, action, and result become coherent and consistent. Success in life and business requires power to make your vision realized through action, and success thus requires integrity. The English term integrity is defined on three levels, that being true to your principles, being true to your word or your commitments, and being true to yourself. And total integrity involves a total accord between these three levels of being true. And men and women of integrity have power to sustain their commitment through to the end and achieve their objectives against odds and are those in whom their principal commitment and self are in accord. So, upgrade your integrity. That's step three in learning and moving through the current times. Number four is subject to your own integrity, support others in their sovereignty, discernment, and integrity. Right? The first three things we can do on the path forward to learn and grow and rewrite the systems of humanity through the crisis that we're dealing with right now are upgrade your sovereignty, upgrade your discernment, upgrade your integrity, and then in alignment with your integrity, help other people upgrade their sovereignty, their discernment, and their integrity. And that doesn't mean take your integrity and put it onto other people but rather to encourage and support them to upgrade their sovereignty, discernment, and integrity, okay? 
Number five, orient your own and others' attention to those who have shown, to your best discernment, the most sovereignty, discernment, and integrity, and the most capacity in supporting others therein. Which, basically, number four and number five here are taking the first three, up-level your integrity, your discernment, and your sovereignty, and then help other people do that, and then take the people who are doing that the best, and then support and promote their channels, their work, to the larger consciousness, right? That's number five. Orient your own and others' attention to those who have shown the most sovereignty, discernment, and integrity and the most capacity in supporting others' upregulation of their own sovereignty, discernment, and integrity. Okay? And number six here is build individual and collective skillfulness in all of these things. Note that this definitely includes building physical infrastructures like communication platforms, new economic models, etc. But the infrastructure must always follow and support human capacity and can never replace nor inhibit human development. Wisdom must precede power. Wisdom must precede power. Mm. It's a tasty morsel there. He then goes on to talk about from theory to practice where he basically highlights a number of different projects that are taking place around the world that he sees as practical real-time solutions that are being worked on by thousands of people globally. He quotes examples like germinfo.com and the Coronavirus Tech Handbook, which are good solid projects that are entirely self-organized and providing significant value. So, if you're just tuning in, I highly recommend you to go back to the beginning of this transmission of this podcast. And I want to encourage you to question the things that you believe and vet them against the best possible information that you can find. Find people who are integrous in their commitment to truth in their commitment to discernment and integrity and use those people not as your own decision making but as mileposts for what might be good decision making good sense making most of what i've talked about today is not what to do with coronavirus or the seriousness of it but this the underlying issue that it has so radically illuminated, which is that our information ecology is broken, it's poisoned, it's polluted. I would also say that a huge thing you can do is to make sure that you are not disseminating things that are untrue. Make sure that you're not telling untruths. It's really important, right? Like, if people need good information, then make sure you don't repost a meme that is oversimplified, that is jumping to conclusions, that is unbased, that is wrong, right? 
I think that in a time like this, we are, as individuals, we are trying to balance between two poles. We are trying to balance between two poles. On one side, we are trying to balance the potential for overreaction, the potential for being afraid when we shouldn't, the potential for looking silly, the potential for looking, seeming fearful, the potential for locking ourselves inside unnecessarily. The other side of that poll is that we're wrong, that we get sick, that we transmit infectious disease to vulnerable populations, that we don't take action when we could have, that we disseminate information that is untrue, that we mislead people, that we act too late, that we pollute the information ecology, that we pollute the environment of our minds with bullshit. That, I would say, is the scarier of the two poles. I am going to act as though I am a non-symptomatic carrier of this virus, and if I quarantine myself into my home, it is less that I'm concerned of getting sick, but rather that my immune system has already beat it off, and that's funny, that my immune system will have already shrugged the virus and that I am just carrying it and that I can infect innocent people unknowingly. I encourage you to consider the possible suffering of humanity as opposed to your own self-interest. I encourage you to imagine the potential that by erring on the side of caution for a couple of weeks that you could potentially lessen human suffering. And to be on the wrong side of that poll and to be arrogant and confident in your beliefs and come out wrong, you can literally spread human suffering. And to do that through arrogance is a pretty hateful act. Okay? I don't want you to be afraid, but I also don't want you to be misled or ignorant or overconfident when you shouldn't be. I encourage you to do your own research, to increase your ability to discern what is noise from signal, increase your ability to take baby out of bathwater, throw the bathwater out, but keep the baby, stay healthy, protect your families, and don't get anybody sick. All right? I love you guys. Thanks for tuning in. I'll probably keep live casting my podcasts on Facebook for the next couple of days because it seems like people watch it. Okay? Let me know what you think in the comments below. I'd love this to be a nucleus for conversation. Take the time to read the article that I posted in my Facebook post, and I hope that's insightful. Let me know what you think about that there, too. Love you guys. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for all the love. Love you, Scott Greenstone and Daniel Randall and Teal Anderson and Derek Claypool, John Boone, John, Jennifer. Thanks. Love you. See you later.